7 verse 21 Not everyone who says to me Lord Lord shall enter the kingdom of heaven but who does the will of my father in heaven Good morning everyone Welcome to our, our, uh, our, any visitors we may have and um, all of our regular attending members. We're so thankful, grateful that you're here, thankful at Sabbath, amen. amen, and for a refuge in time to step away from the chaos of this world. Um, I've got to, uh, I'll just kind of recant that we will be out of town the first part of the week. Unfortunately, there's 
there's an impending death on my, uh, the family that we were going to go visit my brother-in-law's uh, grandmother. And so we're going to just kind of wait until all of that clears. And so we'll go at some other time. Uh, I will probably utilize the time to um, work on my house because those projects are endless and um, we have a lot of projects that we're still doing. So you can still refer your needs to Joy, but you, will, you may see my vehicle still in the driveway if you go by. <clears throat> but that is the reasoning uh, we aren't able to go at this time. Uh, let's go ahead and pray, and then we will get into our scripture, uh, our, our sermon for this morning. Kind Father in heaven, thank you so much for this day. Thank you so much for Sabbath. Thank you so much for um, just your love, your grace, and your mercy for bringing us safely through another week. And dear God, I pray that as we uh, go through the sermon this morning, that the words that are spoken would come directly from your throne, and that, Lord, it would affect our lives in some way, that we would be drawn closer to you, that we would come to know you more fully, that we would reflect you more fully, um, that we would reflect your character um, we thank you, Lord, and we pray for your spirit to be in our midst today and that you would move in a mighty way. We thank you and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're going to, uh, we're, as I, the last time I was here, I was finishing up a sermon series on faith. Uh, so I finished that up last time. We're going to start, it's like a, another couple sermons in a row of, on this topic of knowing that we know him. Um, we're beginning with a, a tough set of scriptures today. Maybe you've read this scripture in Matthew chapter 7 and you've kind of been almost internally worried about your own standing with God or maybe you've been worried about um, hearing such words. Let's go there to our scripture reading in Matthew chapter 7. And this is a tough text from the Savior, but it doesn't have to be. We're going to walk through it. We're going to walk through the the clues that Jesus has laid out for us. And, um, and we'll find that it doesn't have to be discouraging. It doesn't have to be scary. Jesus has not left us as orphans. He said He was going to send His Holy Spirit to guide us. And so that's what we're praying for today is that the Holy Spirit leads us. There is a, there's two aspects to this text that I see or as I see it. Um, Jesus, one, one thing that we're going to do as we go through it is just following the trail of clues that he has left for us so that we don't have to be discouraged about this text. And the other aspect that I'll touch on briefly is Jesus is just simply doing something that he always did. Uh, this is something that he did uh, throughout his ministry. It's just, uh, I'll flesh that out in a little bit. But anyway, kind of two aspects. So if you'll turn there with me in Matthew chapter 7, we'll begin right there at our scripture reading. The title of the sermon is Knowing That We Know Him. And everybody's there but me, because I was talking and not turning. Matthew chapter 7. And so let's go ahead and read it. I'm going to actually read 21 through 23. The Bible says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice 
lawlessness. This is a tough text, right? Maybe you've read it and wondered about yourself. Um, But let's walk through it together. Let's go through the clues together. Um, Jesus is not speaking to lost people, is he? These are not people who totally disregarded God in their life and they're coming to Jesus at the end of time or at the end of their life saying, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? These are not lost people. These are very much people who thought they had a relationship with Jesus, right? That's the scary part, is they thought they had and they were walking in the Spirit. They were walking with God. Um, So that's the scary part of it. But Jesus left us clues in this text that help us so that we don't, we don't, the words are, the words would be terrifying to hear, but we're reading them ahead of time. We're walking through them ahead of time, so we don't have to hear them on the other side. So let's go through this. These people that Jesus is speaking to in the passage, they're not heathen, lost people. These are clearly people who think and believe and claim to have had a relationship with him on this earth. They're naming his name. They said, he said, haven't we done all these wonders in your name. We can, just on surface value, we can conclude from the text that doing works, wonderful works, miracles, signs, wonders, we can just at a surface level conclude that that is not evidence of a relationship with Jesus, right? Just surface level, we can conclude that's not the evidence that Jesus is looking for. I'll put it that way. And I think as we, we read this text, I think uh, we, I have that same incredulous feeling that the disciples must have had when Jesus told them how difficult it was for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Peter exclaimed, Lord, who then can be saved? Because in their mind, the blessing of God was they, they saw rich people as being very blessed by God and that they already had some sort of close relationship with Jesus, so they were automatically in the kingdom. And so when Jesus told them how difficult it was for a rich man to enter the kingdom, Peter claimed, exclaimed, who then can be saved? If the rich are not going in, who can be? Um, and so we think, I think about this text in the same way. It's like, Lord, these people are doing miracles If they're not in the kingdom, who then can be? Let's keep going through the text. There is a trail of clues that Jesus leaves for us. So you remember in Revelation, the Bible outlines at the end of time that actually evil spirits will perform miracles, even so much so that they might even be able to deceive the very elect, Jesus said. So how can we know that we know him? How can we be sure that we're not in this group in Matthew chapter 7? Our first indication that we find is in verse 21. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. So it goes without saying that a prerequisite or a, a, a recommendation or, no, a prerequisite is better, a a must for entering the kingdom of heaven is being surrendered to the will of God, right? You're not going to enjoy heaven. You're not going to enjoy uh, the kingdom of God unless you're first surrendered to the will of God. 
Remember, Jesus prayed in the Lord's Prayer, let your kingdom come, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So being surrendered to the will of God kind of seemingly goes without saying, but it is an issue in this text, and it's an issue with the group of people that Jesus is addressing. Let's keep going. If you don't enjoy doing God's will here, you're not going to enjoy heaven. It's just, I'm sorry, that's just the way it is. We are representatives of God's kingdom on this earth. So naturally, our desire, if the Spirit of God is within us, our desire is to do His will. Jesus prayed in the garden, Lord, I don't want to go through this thing. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Then let's go to the last statement. This is, I think, the most telling, and it puts it all together for us. Verse 23, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. This is our biggest clue, along with the first verse. All right. The word for, in the Greek for law, or God's law, is nomos. And Jesus, in this context, in order to make it negative in Greek, and we even do it in English, and I'll illustrate that in a moment, <clears throat> you just put, if you put an alpha prefix at the beginning of any word in Greek, it makes it negative automatically. And so when Jesus uses the word anomian or anomos, the word is nomos, Jesus says it's, these people are anomos, that means it's negative. That means they are without law. That means they're apart from the law. That means they're, they're in rebellion against the law of God. They're anomian. They're without law. Um, and this is actually, this. Uh, we have these things that still exist, the root words in Greek that still exist in our world today. Somebody who is an atheist, uh, the word in, in, in Greek for God is theos, and they put that negative alpha at the beginning, that means they're somebody who is without God. There's no God. That's what they're saying. They're proclaiming to the world, I'm an atheist. I don't believe there's any God. I'm apart from God. There's no God. The same word, the same is true for an agnostic. The Greek word for knowledge is gnosko. And so when they put that alpha prefix at the beginning, they're saying, I'm without knowledge. I don't know if there's a God. I don't know what I believe. And so it's just without, apart from, negative. I'm without knowledge. Jesus is telling us that these people are without or apart from the law. That's what he's telling us in this context. So Jesus is saying they're practicing lawlessness or works of iniquity. These are people who are in rebellion against God's law. They're apart from it. So we have two groups of people in 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 this passage. Those who do the will of God are in the kingdom. And then you have those who are on the outside. They are lawless or contrary to the law of God. So this tells me that there is a connection in the verses, that there's a connection between the will of God and the law of God. Those who do the will of God are in the kingdom, and those who are apart from the law are outside the kingdom. Do you see that connection in the text? Those who do the will of God are in the kingdom. Those who are apart from the will of God 
or are lawless are on the outside. There's a connection between the will of God and the law of God. Do you see it there? You see, because the law is an expression of God's will and desire for human beings. This is who I am. This is how you are supposed to represent me on this planet. It's an expression of God's will. But in this passage, there's a dichotomy between two people groups, those who do the will of God and those who practice lawlessness. <clears throat> Jesus isn't condemning those people who are living within the law. Those, Jesus isn't condemning people who are living according to the law or according to the will of God. <clears throat> it's a law of love, and God is love. The first four are expressions of our love for God. If I love God, I'm not going to have any other gods before Him. If I love God, I'm not going to create a, a graven image out of metal or wood and bow myself down to it and worship it. If I love the Lord my God with all my heart and all my soul and all my mind, I'm not going to take His name in vain and live in a way that does not reflect Him. If I love the Lord my God with all my heart, all my soul, and all my mind, I'm going to remember the Sabbath day because He told me to, and He blessed it, and He sanctified it, and He set it apart as for use as a holy day. And obviously, if I love the Lord first, He says, he says to love the Lord God with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind, your neighbor is yourself. That sums up the last six. If I love my neighbor, I'm not going to conspire to murder him or murder him. I'm not going to... Um, lie to him. I'm not going to steal from him. Those types of things. Very basic tenets of our relationship with people and with God. <clears throat> However, so in this context, in our text, there's a dichotomy between those who do the will of God or, the, or are living according to the, the law of God and those who are lawless. However, maybe like me, I did not grow up in the Adventist church. And so I did not, I came, my parents came to Christianity when I was six, seven, eight years old, something like that. And I heard for the duration of my life until I was about 20, in my early 20s, when I came into the Adventist church, and even prior, I was studying on my own, learning about the, 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 the Sabbath and those types of things. And I heard my whole life that the law of God was no longer binding on human beings that Jesus nailed it to the cross. His shed blood, or His, his blood, you know, what, obviously it blots out our sins, but the whole idea is that the law itself is gone, and that we can't, we're no longer under the law. We're no longer under, or we're no longer obligated to keep it, or walk according to it. That is what I heard, and that is in multiple churches, folks. My parents' church hopped. And so it's not like I only heard it in the Baptist church or I only heard it in a non-denominational church. It was across the board that we just need Jesus, <clears throat> which is true. We just need Jesus, and we're going to flesh that out. But what does that actually look like? That's what we're going to flesh out today, okay? <clears throat> and so um, there was a man to, to illustrate my point a little bit further as to what the common belief is in Christianity. About a year ago, no, it's been over a year ago now, when I was the associate pastor at the Chattanooga First Seventh-day Adventist Church, we got a call into the office, and 
this man from the community said, I would like somebody from your church to come explain to me what Adventists believe. And I mean, I'm a new pastor. I mean, even if you've been in pastoring for a long time, that's a great call. Yes, I will absolutely come and study the Bible with you. And so I went to his house. And within about 15 minutes, it became very apparent to me that this man already believed and knew everything that he wanted to know about Adventism. He just wanted somebody to argue with. And so I was there, and they were just... It was a very fruitless venture. He already knew and believed all that he wanted to know. He had already made up his mind what Adventists believe. He didn't want somebody to come study with him. He just wanted somebody to argue with his viewpoint of the Bible. And his viewpoint was this. Under the New Covenant, we don't have to keep the law. Under the New Covenant, we're not, we're not bound by it anymore. And so I'm just sitting there, and I'll just, you know... I, no matter what the guy said, he was an impossible person. Um, you show him something that directly contradicts what he says, and he'll say, well, you can make the Bible say whatever you want. He was a very contentious person. He did not have any sort of fruit of the Spirit that I would be looking for in a human being. Love, joy, peace, patience, self-control. He didn't have any of that. And so I'm like, you know, after a couple of sessions, I was just like, praise God, actually the Lord just... Uh, made a door opening for me. Um, I, was, I had to go teach at the school during that hour, or right about that same hour, and I was like, well, sir, you know, we both have our, we're just going to have to cut our, you know, agree to disagree and go about our separate ways. But he maintained that thought. The law of God, we are, it's, it's no longer binding on human beings under the new covenant. We don't have to keep it. And I'm sitting there thinking, really, let's go there to the new covenant. Please, let's go there to the new covenant. Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. Would you go there with me? Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. This is written a couple of different ways in a couple of different places. In Jeremiah 31, God says, I'm going to write my laws on your hearts and on your minds. In Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27, it's, it's nuanced slightly different, and that's what I want to capitalize on today. <clears throat> Ezekiel 36, 26, and 27. <clears throat> All right, I'm going to begin in 26. The Bible says, this is God's promise to us, I will give you a new heart. And put a new spirit within you. And I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will keep my judgments and do them. God has a problem that he's had since human beings broke the law of God, broke his commandments in the beginning, is that humanity has been in opposition to him. We're his enemies we're no longer desiring to be in harmony with him. And so God has this problem. He condemned Israel over and over again of being a stubborn and stiff-necked people, meaning they would not come to him. They would not surrender to him. They would not come to him for their salvation. But if you read this text, what would you say God's goal is? And when the in the in these In Hebrew, the word for statutes, judgments, commandments, laws, they're all synonyms. So if you read it in Jeremiah, it's translated as commandments or laws. If you read it here, it says statutes, judgments. They're synonymous words of one another. 
And so if you were to read this, what would you say God's goal is for humanity? What would you say? To change us to be like Him? Specifically, 27, He says, I am going to live in you, put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, in my commandments, in my judgments, in my laws. So it looks to me as though God is trying to bring humanity back into harmony with himself. These commandments, these statutes, these judgments are expressions of his will. In the beginning, we desired to do God's will. But at some point in time, when we sinned against God and we became very self-focused, we no longer desired to live and act in a loving way toward the people around us or toward God, and we became very internally focused. And so God is saying, I am going to transform who you are. I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to give you a new mind, and I'm going to put my spirit within you. You need a new heart and a new mind before you can respond to the Holy Spirit. We need to have a sensitivity to what the Holy Spirit is convicting us to do. And then we merely yield to that conviction in our lives. <clears throat> God's promise, in John, and, and he says it differently in Jeremiah 31, and it's the same one that Paul quotes in Hebrews chapter 10. He said he's going to write his laws on our hearts and on our minds, and he's going to put the Holy Spirit within us and, quote, cause us to walk according to these statutes, his judgments. There's an issue of the human heart. He's got to give us a new heart. He says, I'm going to take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh so that you can have a heart that is sensitive to my spirit and that you can actually yield and so that you can actually do my will. But it is a divine transaction. Who is doing the work? God is, right? It's something that God will not just impose his will on human beings. We have to desire it. We have to ask him to do this work in us, right? And he does the work. The Bible tells us that it is God who works in us both to will and to do for his good pleasure. There's this issue of rebellion, hard-heartedness against his commandments, which are a transcript of who he is. And it looks to me as though God, his goal, his desire, is to bring people back into harmony with himself. He wants to live in us and through us once again. That's his goal. We've broken the law. We're in rebellion against it. He's trying to bring us back into harmony. We were designed and created to reflect God. We were created in his image. Not only do we reflect, reflect him physically, but our moral conduct was to reflect God. And he's trying to restore that. That's what he's trying to do. Jesus refers to this miracle that we're, discussed, that we're reading about here in Ezekiel as the new birth in John chapter 3. Remember when he's talking to Nicodemus, he says, he said, no one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. That's this new birth process. Getting a new heart, a new mind, a mind that actually desires to do God's will again, but it is a divine act that we just have to ask him to do in our lives. And when we accept Jesus' perfect sacrifice on our behalf, when we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, we don't have to pay for our sins with our own life. 
we can accept his substitutionary sacrifice on our behalf. And then the Bible says that he will, quote, live in us and cause us to walk in his statutes, in his commandments, in his judgments. Jesus said it also another way. He said that the Holy Spirit would convict us of sin. What is sin? It's the transgression of the law. The Holy Spirit is trying to keep us in harmony with God's law, with his will for humanity. The Holy Spirit, as the Holy Spirit convicts us, and we yield to conviction by, like, by default, we are then walking in harmony with the law of God. In the end, it's the Holy Spirit doing the work. We are merely responding to conviction in our lives. And as we walk in the Spirit, we are fulfilling the will of God for our lives in that moment. The Holy Spirit is trying to keep us in harmony with God. He doesn't want us to sin. Why? What is Isaiah 59? Yeah, at least the death. But Isaiah 59 says that your sins separate you from God. God has always wanted to live in us and through us. And if we're living in sin, we're living in separation. <clears throat> the Holy Spirit is trying to keep us in harmony with the will of God. Conviction is a good thing. As much as I fight against it, as much as there are times that we all fight against conviction, I can't tell you how many times I've prayed like, Lord, I just want to be in harmony with you. Lord, please convict me of the things that are in my life that are not pleasing to you, and then I get angry when he does. I'm like, just, just leave me alone. Just let me have this one thing, right? That's, that's the, the carnal nature still coming out of us. Paul actually illustrates this really well. This right here, what we're talking about in Matthew chapter 7, what we're talking about in Ezekiel 36, our last text together is going to be found in Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, illustrating the same thing, the same theme, the same idea. Romans chapter 8, walking in the Spirit, walking in harmony with God, God living in us and causing us to walk according to his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, his laws. I think that this text very much combines what we read in, in Matthew with Ezekiel. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. He says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. If we're walking in the Spirit, how can we, in the, in the Spirit of God is living out His life within us, that means automatically by default we're walking according to the commandments of God. We're walking according to God's law of love. He says there's no condemnation. Why is there no condemnation? Because you, you can't get in trouble for, for living in harmony with a law. I cannot be... I cannot be pulled over and ticketed for driving 54 to 55, right? For one thing, we have the life of Christ. If you're walking in the Spirit, that means you've already received the free gift of salvation. That means you're already desiring Christ to, to live in you and through you. And so we have this umbrella of grace that covers us. There's no condemnation. And when he says there's no condemnation, that means we're no longer condemned by the law as sinners. We're no longer under the penalty so when the Bible tells us that you're no longer under law, 
It's because you're no longer under the penalty of it, which is death. You've received Christ as your Savior. And so through him, you have eternal life. That's what John 3.16 and all the Bible tells us. That if we receive or we believe in Jesus Christ as our Savior, he, will, he covers us, his blood cleanses us of sin, and then he wants to live in us and live out his life in each one of us and cause us to walk according to his will. <clears throat> Romans chapter 8 tells us that there's no condemnation to those who are walking in the Spirit. And he goes on. Verse 4. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. He uses the same word that Jesus used in Matthew chapter 7. Nomos, the law of God. Final verses together. Listen to this. Listen to this in Romans chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. The Bible says, For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is at enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. That is why it is a divine miracle when a human being desires to do the will of God, desires to live in harmony with the law of God. It takes a divine miracle. So when I heard my entire life in Christianity that the law of God is gone, the law of God is non-existent, what kind of mind hates the law of God? The carnal mind. So that means the opposite must be true, that the spiritual mind desires to be in harmony with it. Does that make sense? The, the spiritual mind, because of the Spirit of God living in us, desires to walk in harmony with God because that's His commandments, His laws are an expression of Him. It's who He is. It's His will. That's why Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but whosoever does the will of my Father in heaven. It's because they've experienced salvation in Jesus Christ. And he is living out his life in them. We are no longer under the penalty or condemnation of the law because of Jesus' imputed righteousness, but because he's living in us, God only sees his righteousness. And as we live and walk and grow in that life, you know, yes, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to fall, we're going to fail because we still live in a sinful planet, right? And in 1 John, John tells us, he says, My little children, I write unto you that you sin not. Don't sin. That means live in harmony with God's law. He says, But if you do, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's always there interceding for us. <clears throat> and so, I've got to... So it's the same life. It's Christ living in us. Paul says it this way. He says, it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So that's kind of the trail of clues. 
that we follow through the text. That it's, it's God living in us. It's, it's the Holy Spirit living in us and causing us to walk according to His statutes, according to His will. And those who are still in the carnal mind are the ones who are lawless. They're outside. They're apart from the law of God. But the goal of the new covenant is not to do away with the law of God. It very much looks to me like he wants to bring human beings back into harmony with the will of God, as we saw in Ezekiel. There's another thing that Jesus is doing in this text. I told you it was twofold. Um, This is something Jesus is also doing. He gives us a trail of clues to follow. But Jesus is also doing something in this text that he did all the time in his ministry. And I'm just going to touch on this briefly. Jesus gives us difficult passages. He gives us difficult sayings. Do you remember remember when he was here on this planet, what did he often speak in? Parables. He spoke in cryptic language. And who were the only people that got to really understand what those parables were? The disciples. So there was many masses and crowds that would follow him around. And I specifically remember a place in, I think it's in John chapter 7, where the crowd's following him. Jesus gives some difficult saying. And the crowd say, this is a difficult saying. Who can understand it? And from that time, many turned away, right? And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, Lord, he says, Peter, will you, he says, will you also turn away? And Peter said, Lord, to where will we go? You have the words of eternal life. So a lot of times the masses were following Jesus for whatever they could get out of him. But the disciples, they got insight into, they believed he was the Messiah. They believed that he had the words of eternal life. But the only reason that they got that insight is because they came to him and they said, Lord, what does this mean? So when Jesus would give difficult sayings, they would approach him, press him for the answer, and he would give it to them, right? And so I believe that Jesus gives us, even to this day, these difficult passages that are hard for us, and it it causes us to maybe question our own salvation, but he's giving us that passage for us to press him, to come to him, and to seek him. Lord, what is the answer? I don't want to be in this group. I want to be in your kingdom. And so Jesus did this all the time where he said hard things that the average person was like, "Uh, too much for me. I'm going to walk away from this guy. Jesus was known for his hard sayings, and this is no different. He's inviting us to press him for the answer. God said that we would search for him, and we would find him when? When we search for him with all of our heart. He's not looking for a half-hearted relationship with us. In Matthew, in a recap here, in Matthew chapter 7, there's two groups of people. One is claiming that they did many wonderful works in the name of Jesus, and Jesus is saying, in effect, these miracles, these things that you're claiming, are not evidence of a relationship with me. And then Jesus blatantly says, I never knew you. But he says, those who do the will of my Father will be in the kingdom. So the question is, how can we know that we know him? And I'll try to say it this way. Doing the will of God, walking in God's commandments, is the evidence 
of salvation. It's the evidence or result of somebody who has experienced Christ in their life. Because Paul says, he highlights that same dichotomy. The carnal mind hates the law of God. So then, the Bible tells us that this divine miracle that God wants to do in us is give us a new heart, a new mind, and He wants to put His Spirit within us and cause us to walk according to His statutes, His commandments, His judgments. So therefore, the commandment keeping is not the means of salvation. It's the evidence. It's the result that salvation has occurred in a human life. It's the result of the Holy Spirit living within us and causing us to walk according to His statutes, according to His judgments, according to His commandments. The crux of this text is I think that when we find ourselves, how can we know that we know Him? When we find ourselves loving God's law, His commandments, we can know that a supernatural act has occurred in our lives. It's a work of God. It's about a relationship. It's about connection. Jesus says, if we abide in Him, we would bear much fruit. He says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it's about abiding in Christ, Him living out His life within us. Jesus condemns these people in Matthew 7 as being apart from the law or lawless. And I am submitting to you today that the love for God's commandments, a desire to do His will, walking in His commandments, is evidence that the Holy Spirit has done a divine miracle in your life. <clears throat> We've heard about what, how, the, how the carnal mind thinks about the law of God. I want to highlight a few verses. You don't have to go there. I'm just going to highlight them. Here, I'll read this one really quick to you. 1 John chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. He says, Now by this we know that we know Him, if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in Him. The Bible writers focus on the evidence. It's not the means. We aren't doing, keep, trying to keep the commandments on our own to be saved, but because of Christ working in us and the Holy Spirit guiding us and convicting us of the way, he's, it's the evidence. He, they, the Bible writers focus on the commandments because that is showing, that is telling evidence of someone who is in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a law of love. Jesus said, by this shall all men know you to be my disciples if you love one another. That is who God is. The Bible tells us that God is love. The commandments, the law of God is a law of love. This is how you are known, the Bible says. So we've heard about what the carnal mind thinks about the law of God and how I have heard it echoed in, throughout my life in Christianity. It's no good. It's gone. We can't keep it. We can't do it. You're right. You need a divine transformation to do that. It's all about Christ living in us and through us. But this is is what the converted mind says about the law of God. Listen to this quickly. Psalms 119. If you read through the Psalms, you can read this over and over and over again. This is what the converted mind thinks 
about the law of God. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I look into all of your commandments. He says, with my whole heart have I sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. He says, I will run the course of your commandments, for you shall enlarge my heart. You will give me the ability to do that. It is God working in. He says, teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. Make me walk in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. And get this, this harmonizes perfectly with Romans chapter 8, Matthew, more so Matthew chapter 7. We're talking about the will of God and the law of God. Listen to this. This is David. This is the mind of a converted man and his attitude toward the law. He says this, Psalm 40 verse 8, I delight to do your will, O my God. Yea, your law is written within my heart. That is the converted attitude toward the law of God. It is the law, the law, the Bible tells us that the law, law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. But it takes a divine act, according to the Bible. I'll close. Do you know him today? If you're sitting there saying to yourself, like I have many times, Lord, I don't have a love for your law. I don't have a love for your commandments. I don't want to do the things that you want me to do many times. The Bible tells us this, that all we have to do is pray for it. Jesus said, remember who's doing the work? The Holy Spirit, right? And what did Jesus say about the Holy Spirit? He said, the Holy, God is more willing to give His Holy Spirit to those who ask than we are to give good gifts to our own children. This is one of those prayers that is always yes. Lord, I want to be in harmony with You. Lord, I want to do Your will. Lord, forgive me. Lord, save me. This is one of those prayers that is always yes. So whenever we find ourselves out of harmony with God and His will for our lives, it's just a matter of turning back to Him. The, the same verse that we read in 1 John says that He, he, des, he desires for us to walk in God's commandments. He says, he says, if you confess your sins, your transgressions, He is faithful and just to forgive them. Whenever we find ourselves out of harmony with God, we just have to keep turning back to Him. John says that if we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins. <clears throat> do you know Him today? Is he, do you desire to know Him? Do you want to be in His kingdom? Amen. Well, as we receive, God sees our hearts. As we receive Jesus Christ, He begins to do this divine transformation in us to where we desire to do His will. The Bible shows us what His will is. And He wants to work out His will in us. How many want to dedicate themselves, rededicate themselves to the Lord today? 
for him to work out his will in us. If this is your desire, please pray with me. Kind Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you so much for the guide that it provides for us in this life. Thank you so much for your love. Lord, help us to be a reflection of that love in our sphere of influence. Lord, we need you to change who we are. We're selfish. Lord, we don't have a love for your law. We don't have a naturally have that. So we need you to do that work in us. We want to be among that group that, that does the will of God. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom, but he or she who does the will of my Father. And you promised that you would put your spirit within us and cause us to do your will. Help us to be responsive to the conviction of the Holy Spirit in our lives. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.